Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen continues her series of discussions with Michael Trout with part one of their examination of his fourth video, Breaking Pieces. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T and the number 20. Part two will be released on January 28th. This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has. So I would like to share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the, Associ the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He has also written and produced five videos focusing on the unique perspective of babies on divorce, adoption, loss, domestic violence, and parental incarceration. And in fact, these videos are going to be the focus of the first part of this new series I'm doing with Michael Trout. He comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience, and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far, and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go. Hi, this is Debbie Reed, and the book that Karen Buckwalter, myself, along with Wendy Lyons Sunshine, recently released, Raising the Challenging Child, is now available for purchase. I hope you'll visit the website, raisingthechallengingchild.com, to purchase the book. Thanks so much. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. We are here continuing our series with Michael Trout, um, and we are talking about the series of videos that he made over a period of years. Today, the video that we're going to be talking about is called Breaking Pieces, Babies Have Their Say About Domestic Violence. This particular video uh, came out in 2002. So thank you for being here again today, Michael. Great to be back. Yeah, so I know in our discussion of an overview of all of the videos, one of the things that I brought up was that uh, the idea that exposure to domestic violence is sort of forgotten about. There's this idea that, you know, it's, it's the victim, and the perpetrator that we're always dealing with. And it's it's easy for the children to be forgotten. And, and in fact, very often what I've seen is a pattern of parents saying, well, we never did this around the kids. Uh, and I think that is often a way for them to protect themselves from their own fear and shame and guilt about that because, you know, really how realistic is that? Uh, but so talk to me a little bit about uh, what what prompted this video, what was going on in your practice and what you were seeing and what your vision was. Well, it's getting to be an old story about, the, about what prompted each one because it's often the same tale. I was in the middle of <clears throat> clinical work that kept bringing the issue up, um, not only the issue of domestic violence in the home at all, but the issue of parents being so completely sure that their kids were protected, if not inoculated, either because they weren't there or quite often because the parents asserted they were too young. They were too young to notice what was going on, even if they were in the presence of violence. They were too young to remember it, even if they were there. And they were too young to have a conscious uh, reaction at the time, uh, particularly if they weren't there. And it's, it, it, became, it became a real dilemma since I don't like to do a lot of teaching in my clinical work. Um, it became a dilemma to try to help parents grasp the idea that it isn't just the events that that happened in our families that hurt families and that hurt little children it's everything related to the events the the affective changes the mood changes in the mother or father the changes in ritual or rhythm the forgetfulness about a an event a birthday or something because the day before there was a beating or a threat or something along that line so that in combination with the fact that by the 90s, what we, what we knew about prenatal life and what we knew about memory and what we knew about children's storage of events and their reactivity to it, all of that was just growing so fast. It was almost impossible to continue denying that children, babies and prenates and preschoolers we're gonna watch, we're gonna notice, we're gonna do what evolution had set them up to do. We're gonna do what a baby in the jungle, a baby giraffe or something would always do, which is notice the environment and remember what the baby giraffe, let's say, saw so that that baby can protect himself 
from such events or prepare for them. So with all that pressure of the growing knowledge, it just seemed time to, to begin to look into what did that mean about domestic violence? Yes, and so um, as you are often a man who is able to come up with amazing questions, I'm looking at the beginning, uh, the booklet that goes with the video, and just the, even this question itself really kind of stopped me in my tracks when I read it as I was reviewing the pamphlet and the script. It says, when parents are harming one another, what are the babies doing? Yeah. And of course, the presumption is the babies are doing nothing. Somehow they've disappeared. If not physically, at least emotionally. So it doesn't matter. It's a dumb question. Of course, you and I know it's not a dumb question because they are, in fact, doing lots of things. Yes, yes, which which we will continue to, to talk about. Another thing, though, I want to point out before we get into the actual script of the video is something else you have written here. It says, we have known that domestic violence is a leading cause of injury to women between the ages of 15 and 44 in the United States, more than car accidents, muggings, and rapes combined. These were crime statistics from the FBI in 1991 at that time. Frankly, it has not aroused us much. There are nearly three times as many animal shelters in the United States as there are shelters for battered women and their children. And that was from Senate Judiciary Hearings, uh, Violence Against Women Act in 1990. You go on to say about uh, boys are more likely to become violent when they witness their father's violence. But you come around to say, you know, maybe we could just pay attention to this in general more uh, if we think about the baby. So maybe in some way, this would also bring shed light to this on women who are victims of domestic violence. So as I reread that, that was interesting to me too. Um, knowing that we think about these videos primarily uh, as a voice of the child. There is an exception in in one of them, but um, I'd like to just hear a little bit about that. And do you you feel that that succeeded? Say again the question, what succeeded? Elevating the issue of domestic violence for women as victims as well, even Um, though you are focusing on the child. Because you say in here that perhaps maybe this is one more way to to do that. I'm not sure I can testify to that. Mm -hmm. You know, my aim was to raise awareness for uh, about babies, and that would include the awareness of some parents about their babies. But I don't know whether that extended then to empathy for the mothers. And that's a very interesting question that you asked, because we know that um, it's not I don't have the statistics, but it's not uncommon for a little child, particularly a female, who has witnessed domestic violence to grow up to pick an abuser to be her partner and to then suffer it herself and then notice her baby suffering it or not notice her baby suffering it. So whether that, that ex- becoming aware of what this means for babies meaning means opening our eyes to what it meant for the mothers of those babies who may have themselves been victims. It's a wonderful question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A very subtle element of that question 
that only I would only know about because it came up in psychotherapy so often is that um, women who experience domestic violence also often, not always, but often experience self-rebuke and shame about the domestic violence. Um, and so those mothers rearing little girls are raising little girls in a shame-based household, particularly shame as regards what it means to be a little girl. So when those little girls grow up, it does stand to reason that they would act in a shame-based way, which might of all crazy things then make them not very appreciative of their own child's experience. Yes, yes, true, yeah, yeah. So, um, let's talk about uh let, let let's just go into some of the script and um we we talked about some specific aspects of the script that we wanted to share could you share here the opening line of it um which we will play for listeners but if you could read it sure but we should probably warn listeners that even before the child begins oh yes there's a, a background video yes. and video. Uh, the, the background video, that is what is shown on the screen, is a piece of artwork presented to me by a grown woman um, who was trying to understand why she kept picking guys like she picked, um, to none of whom she got married, but in front of many of whom her child witnessed uh, at least bad behavior. And to make a very long story short, she was a magnificent artist and brought me one day a series of her paintings, about six of them, all almost identical, just different, only in color, and had no idea what the subject matter was. She just thought they were pretty and I might like to look at them. And of course, it took about two seconds to notice that they were all uterine-shaped objects. I would call them uteruses, but... Uh, and all of them had arrows or knives or something sharp going into them, into them. And I asked her if she could look at them and tell me what she saw. And of course, she saw nothing whatsoever. At the end of that session, uh, her eyes had begun to open a bit. And she went to her mother and asked her mother if anything ever happened during the pregnancy for her. And her mother was aghast and said, what in the world are you coming up with? Nothing happened, everything was fine. And the girl said, the, the, my, my patient, she's about in her mid thirties, said, come on, I have a feeling that something else went on. And her mom said, I do not understand that. How could you possibly know uh, the frequency with which I was beaten while you were inside of me? So that little girl grew up to not know anything consciously, but to repeat some patterns and then to draw about it. And I couldn't overlook the, bus, the op opportunity to include her artwork as background. Yes, and I, I didn't have all of the backstory on that artwork, so I, I really didn't know if that was her own experience of uh, being a victim of domestic violence mm -hmm. while she was pregnant or what you were saying. So, wow, really fascinating. and. You also, uh, we, we should say, uh, uh, about the 911 call. Yeah, the audio intro 
over the video of these this artwork is a live a real life 911 call where a four-year-old girl has dialed the number and is uh, crying into the phone for the people to come save her baby brother because uh, bad things are happening. We, we can't tell exactly what. It sounds like somebody's hitting somebody and the child's trying to say it, but it's coming out all garbled. I have to say, Michael, that uh, many times I have felt like if I just stop the video right there without even getting into the rest of the video, that that people hearing that and the reality of, you know, your original question, like what are the babies and children doing while this is going on? And the reality of hearing a call like that, that forces us to not allow ourselves to defend against the reality that this is what could be happening. I think even just that call alone, if I stop the video right there, it has such a powerful impact before we even even start into the rest of it. It's startling and upsetting and gripping. And one of the reasons why, by the way, this is not necessarily the best video to use in parent education programs because it's an awful lot to put on parents, especially if they've had the experience. Yes, yes, and, and we had talked about that before. If you, if you wanna share again, I think we should. And uh, who, who, what the audience was that you were thinking of? Well, I was hoping it would be more for domestic violence uh, treatment and rehabilitation programs, both for abusers uh, and for women and shelters, but not for the, the women themselves, um, but for the staff who would, who would be a part of those programs, clinical and non-clinical staff, support staff, the judiciary, the state's attorneys in each county and so on. So the overall uh, professional systems surrounding the, the victims yes. um, and, and helping appreciate and bring forward the voice of the child, which as we opened the podcast up with saying can easily be overlooked in these circumstances. Yes. <clears throat> so the script begins with the child's voice, just introducing it by saying, This is a story about what it's like in my world. That's all. Mm -hmm. And then a little later, the same child says, This is a story about me. Or maybe it's about you. So let, I want to stop with that one. Is that okay to stop? Or do you want to, okay. Tell me about that, Michael. This is a story about me, or maybe it's about you. I want to know what is in your mind and what are your thoughts about that, those two lines. Of course, my, my mission is to, how shall I say, get, get grown-ups to sit up straight for goodness sakes, and listen to, ch to young children, even when they're invisible and aren't, and maybe we think inarticulate. So I thought it, it would be one thing for, to make a video that was about a particular child's experience, but people could be let off the hook then by saying, oh my, that's an awful story about that child. So I decided to have this speaker, who's by, by the way, my oldest granddaughter, uh, when she was very small, I decided to have her say, uh, this is a story about me, but then sort of 
capture the listener by saying, oh, well, or maybe it's about you. Maybe you know something about this. And it works. And, you know, here's where I have to, like, be, be the Michael Trout fangirl because it's genius how you accomplish getting us to sit up straight and pay attention. Um, they are each like a work of art in terms of how you put them together with the music and the verbiage and even you know what, what we're actually watching which is kind of surprising sometimes that it's mainly just these words on a screen um tell me about um i guess that the other thing that comes to mind with that is how oh gosh how can i ask about this well for young children they mix up who's who mm -hmm. they, also, they also mix up who's at fault yes yes so if you put those two things together the child is in a swirl swirling world of confusion about who to blame who to side with um, which then raises issues of power so of all things you might one particular child might side with them the victim who's often the mother but not always but another child might side with the perpetrator uh, and I mean literally in the moment, might run up beside the perpetrator uh, to sort of identify with the aggressor um, or and to protect the self by doing so. And then there's also the piece, um, or maybe it's about you, and it made me think about, and I don't know that this is directly related to, to why you chose that, but I'm thinking about um, in my training and uh, you, you are a special guest in the training with child parent psychotherapy with Alicia Lieberman and uh, in her articles and in her lectures also talking about how mothers particularly with baby boys even toddler boys can mix up who w is the abuser and uh, have feelings towards the baby as though they're the abuser. Yeah, the transferences can be profound and so damaging for the baby boy who, who may be named after the father or may not, but only be the victim of a profound transference uh, by the mother so that she blurts out uh, at a moment in the house, you're just like your father. And the, the, she may not even mean you're, you're bad or you're violent like your father, but the boy baby, the boy toddler may take it to mean that. Mm -hmm. And so boys can end up with shame just like girls, but for different reasons. Yes. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.